Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. I'm very happy to be here um, to participate in this uh, discussion in this interview. My name, for those of you who are not familiar, is Peter Moroni. I'm the executive chairman of Yamana Gold and founder of the company. The company was founded in 2003. And in that 18-year period, we've taken the company from a very small platform in the country of Brazil to um, more than a million ounces of gold equivalent production uh, coming from four countries uh, in the North and South American continents. Countries are important to us. We start from the premise that we want to be in mining friendly jurisdictions. And what we mean by mining friendly is jurisdictions where there is a pedigree for mining, uh, where it's a rules-based. I often say that we can agree to disagree about the geopolitics and the socioeconomics of a particular country. We're not focused on that. What we're focused on is, from a mining company's perspective, is it a good place to be mining? And do we de-risk the opportunities that we have by saying that it's rules-based, this is the code of conduct we have to follow on everything, everything from health, safety, environment, community relations, through exploration, development and operations, and proceed from there. But we've got growth in this company, and I look forward to discussing some of the detail of the company with you, Matthew, um, as part of this interview. Peter, welcome back. Lovely to have you back. I thought we had a super conversation last time you were on. We talked about a, a lot of different topics, some of which we're going to touch upon today. But you've had a lot of news out since we spoke, and I want to kind of run through that. But for people listening in, we are going to touch upon the growth component and the growth opportunities for the company. That's what interests, interests investors uh, and, I, and certainly interests me. But uh, we better kick, better kick off with uh, the story I saw this morning, which was um, you've announced a 10-year unsecured senior note for $500 million. That's What are you going to use that for? Well, I'd say to, to answer that question, the more important part of it, what we alluded to, what we have not yet expressly said, because that will go to the question of, of um, the, the, the outstanding bond buyback, is what will we be using, not only these proceeds, but also our available cash. As you are aware, we have just over 700 million of cash, and 480 some odd million of that is allocated to um, just general treasury. And so when we look at it, we, we looked at it and said, we're paying an interest rate of roughly 4.9%. Let's call it roughly in the range of 5%. That is nowhere near where interest rates are today. Uh, they're well below that. Uh, and we also have a debt repayment. It's an old bond that we entered into quite some time ago, the better part of 10 years ago, that is due next year for 190 million. And then we have further debt repayments that are due in 2023 and 2024. Now I wanna leave you with this assurance. This is ordinary course. Uh, our net debt debit uh, is about 0.5 times. That's our leverage. Uh, companies find themselves in, in an enviable position when they're at one time. We're better than double that in terms of the quality of balance sheet that we have. But I think we should always be looking at what can we do to improve that balance sheet. And let's look at the results then. By doing this bond offering, the interest rate is not 4.9 or 5%. The interest rate is 2.6, just a little over 2.6%. That's almost a halving of the existing interest rate that we're paying. So what do we intend to do with that cash when the deal completes at the end of this week? We will use that cash along with some of our um, $480 million of um, unallocated cash. And we'll buy back those outstanding bonds that are due in 2022, 23, and 24. 
The result of which is that we will reduce our overall gross debt. Our net debt stays the same because we're using cash to pay down uh, debt. We'll still be left with a residual cash balance in the range of 250 million. And that continues to grow as a result of the robust cash flows that we've been seeing over the course of the last couple of years. We saw it as an example in the last quarter alone. So the result of all of that is that we will be left with um, considerably less gross debt by buying back those old bonds at higher interest rates. The tenor of the debt will extend to roughly 10 years from where it's currently at. So in other words, we have no debt repayment obligations for that decade. Uh, the interest carry on the debt is significantly reduced. We estimate in the range of about 20 million per year. That goes straight then to the bottom line of free cash flow. And what we can do with the other capital allocation priorities, which include what do we do with cash returns to investors in the form of dividends and normal course issuer bid purchases, stock buybacks. So all in all then, this is a further step of several that we've taken over the last couple of years to continue to create strength in our balance sheet, strong resilience in our balance sheet that allows us then to be able to say we can block and tackle the other capital allocation priorities better. And as I said, that includes, Matthew, the repayment of, uh, sorry, the, the, the payment of dividends and the increase in those dividends, possible stock buybacks. And it also includes the growth of the company. You touched on growth at the beginning of this discussion. We have plenty of it. We call it managed growth. We wanna make sure that it's low capital growth. We now have far more flexibility to pursue that growth and that's the approach, and that's the reason why we've undertaken this bond offer. Okay, I was going to save it for later in the conversation, but I think, given you've touched upon a lot of the things that I think are important in terms of your growth story, do you mind if we go go for it now? So you're, you're refinancing out um, the, the bonds effectively, or to, to basically be able to buy back, pay down the debt next year, buy buy back the bonds um, due, um, and you're paying a lot less. So the whole, whole point of refinance is to be able to do it at a cheaper rate and then you say it goes straight to the bottom line. But so what's, your, what's, your net, what's the net position then? Is it that you talk about 250 million bucks as the, the net cash position if you did all of the above? Yes, yeah, so, so with that 480 million, we, we're still determining how we allocate uh, the, the our cash for the, for the purchase of these historical bonds. But the, the way to look at it is somewhere in the range of 250 to 200, 220 to 250 million of our cash will be deployed as part of this bond repurchase program. Right. That okay. means then that the gross debt of a company is reduced by roughly that number. The net debt stays the same because we're either deploying cash for the purchase of debt or we're keeping cash on the, in the treasury. But it was burning a hole in our pocket to keep cash in our treasury when we consider that the interest that is being paid on these bonds is, as I said, close to 5%. But the interest that is payable on new bonds is, as I mentioned, just over two point six percent. I guess, like you know, business, business is about you know money in, money out. Okay, so you, you you've got these bonds issued. You have some debt, and now you're sitting with a bunch of cash. But to kind of clean the balance sheet up, which is sort of you know the I guess the ideal situation for any any business, you know, do you have any intent to do that anytime soon, or is it just we're going to just keep? You know, issuing bonds and maybe you know refinancing out debt and so forth. I mean, how, how, do, how do you how do you get a kind of cleaner deck? Yeah, well, there there are two schools of thought. I, I would say to you that today we have the cleanest deck that one can have. 
Um, as an investment grade rated company, uh, it is prudent, logical, and normal, like any business, to maintain some debt on a balance sheet. I know there's a school of thought, particularly in precious metals investing, that the best balance sheet is a balance sheet that does not have any debt. But I think the way to look at that is, is that that makes a balance sheet lazy also. And so the way to approach this is let's look at what debt means. What are the components of debt? We have 750 million on a revolving credit facility. It is completely unborrowed. We expect to keep it unborrowed. It's there just in case of a rainy day. Uh, we have a net debt position that is roughly in the range of 480 million to $500 million. That net debt will continue to decline because our cash balances will continue to increase as a result of the free cash flow that we generate. What that means then at the end of the day is that we're not only extending the tenor of the debt. At some point, we, our business, we expect, we've existed for 18 years. I believe that this business will exist for the next 20, 30 years or longer. So what we want to do is we always want to manage those three capital allocation priorities. To bring the debt of a company to zero is, is noble and honorable, and I understand the sentiment, but it also means that there's a laziness to the balance sheet. What one should be looking at is what's the risk in maintaining debt. And the risk to maintaining debt is when it's too high, the leverage, in other words, to EBITDA is too great. And as I said, we're at about 0.4, 0.5 times our EBITDA. With a billion dollars of EBITDA, that's, you know, we're in a very enviable position from a balance sheet point of view. The risk is also when the debt is immediately due, we do not have that issue because it's at least a tenure out on these bonds. And it's a risk when there is an interest component that is a heavy load uh, on the uh, financial strength of the company. And again, in this particular case, it's not only not a heavy load, but it's also reduced significantly as a result of uh, an interest rate that is uh, very close to, uh, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but very close to zero, 2.6%. Who could have imagined? What's even more interesting to me, Matthew, is that when one looks at the precious metals companies that have issued bonds over the course of the last couple of years, uh, this is anecdotal. Um, I, I believe it's true, but we're within the top two or three best yields. So in other words, the interest that we're paying on bonds is amongst the lowest of all of the companies in our industry. And that goes to the financial strength of the company. And that's what I think people should be looking at. The result of all of that then as I mentioned, is that it allows us the flexibility to say we can overfocus our emphasis on those other two capital allocation priorities, growth being one. And the second, of course, is cash returns to investors. You saw that we increased our dividend last week. We are now at a full 500% increase from the beginning of 2019. We introduced a stock buyback program as well. And what this does then is it provides us the financial flexibility to say, we can better protect investors with their cash returns. And we can also better protect their share price because we can be in market buying stock. If we see that as the best investment we can make, we should be making that investment. Okay, so money's cheap, you're not over leveraged, and you've got optionality with the cash you've got for uh, to fund organic growth and any acquisitions that you may need to make in, in the future. Is that is that? A good summary. Well, I would deviate only on the acquisition side because what we're focusing on is our organic growth. And as you are aware, in the last six months, even from the time that we last met, we have now completed the, the program of 
the technical work that goes into the growth of the company. So we've delivered our feasibility study for and technical detail for our Wazamak project in Canada and made a development decision on that. We've And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that, Peter, but yeah, let, okay. let me let me just finish off on this bit because it's yeah. just I'll 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 forget <laughs> otherwise, which is I'm just talking come back to these levers that you've got available to you as a company. Right, so you, you, dividend. We, we saw that you continue continue to pay dividends, which is which is great. Somewhere, we're at twelve cents. I think we're, we're we're talking about per share, which is what it puts it around. I don't know, somewhere between three and a half four percent. Great. Um, one of the things, the share buyback thing uh, component, you're you're doing that as well, which is obviously you know commendable, but. This year has not been as good as last year. Last year, you had a you know solid solid returns. You know it was a good year for mining generally. What's happening this year? Gold's come off a bit, but have you been punished for? Well, it can't it can't be the, the what happened in Argentina last year. We're we're past that now. What what do you think's happening? What are you seeing in the market? Why are people not buying the story? Well, markets are by their nature complex. And my apologies to jump the gun on growth. I get very excited when we talk about our growth. But markets uh, are very complex. It, it's difficult for me to say that here's the exact pinpoint of what's going on. But I would say it's it's a, it, you know, it's a delicatessen of, it's a menu full of different things that are going on, all of which are converging. Um, but I believe that we're now at, an, at, to mix metaphors a bit, we're at an inflection point of things changing. So what's been going on? Well, we're, my impression is that we're not seeing new money coming into specialist funds. Generalist investors are dipping their toe a little bit in this pool, but not yet fully uh, invested in the idea of investing in our stocks, but getting closer to it. There's a bit of ambivalence in terms of what's happening with gold price, but I think there's there is increasingly a, a, a recognition, a resonance that it's sustainable at these levels, may decline a little bit, but not enough to justify the current valuations of the precious metal stocks. And I believe that cycles are forever. And if one looks at cycles, there are periods in our space in which the precious metal leads before the, the stocks follow. And there are periods where the, the stocks lead and the precious metals follow. And that can go both ways. But my view right now is that we're at that inflection point where the precious metals will lead the metal. So there's a, an increasing recognition that we're generating as an industry, and we as a company in that industry, significant cash flows. We can afford to pay dividends and increase those dividends. We talk, touched a little bit on the stock buyback opportunities, the result of all of which is that it's almost impossible to look at the sector and say it's it's un, it's over, it's weak. We, we can overlook it, notwithstanding the fact that it is so undervalued. And so I think that with that recognition, it becomes clearer that this is an investment that should be made. Now, let's look at our company a bit more closer to ground. We said that the first half of the year would be 47% production by comparison to 53% in the second half of the year. And again, as I said, markets are complex, but I think there's an element of, of all markets where it's not about what happens in a year or two or three years, but what happens in a month or a quarter or a couple of quarters. So is it normal then to say that many investors that should be and would be and will be invested in our stock are saying, I'd like a look-see that they get through that first half where it's a weaker production by comparison to second half. Let's see what their cash flow looks like, what their cash balances look like. 
And then we're in a, in a better position to gauge what we do with those stronger third and fourth quarters. We saw that last week with the delivery of our financial results, uh, with the increase in cash balances, free cash flow, increase in our dividend, introduction of a stock buyback program. Uh, we've seen that the share price has, has overperformed our peers. And now we're into that period of that second half of the year, the third and fourth quarters, with significantly better production. And that also implies that it will be better costs and better cash flow. And so it seems to me very similar to last year that we'll see a, a, a strengthening of our share price in the third and the fourth quarter. Okay. You, you did have a bump. The announcements came out last week, and we will get onto them, I promise. Um, and you, you had a little bump, though, which, which is great. But have you been disappointed by people's perception of you this year? Because you know the the, the story is great. You're, you're a four and a half billion dollar company, you know, which is great. But it comes with their own set of challenges, which is the the, the growth component, continued growth component. What you do with your cash, does it generate meaningful? Does the new cash generate meaningful return, etc.? I mean, has it been a slight disappointment, or is it to be to be expected? Matthew, I, I take a a longer term view uh, as an investor. I'm a longer term investor rather than over a month, a week, a quarter, or several quarters. And so I'm a bit more sanguine. I'm not disrespectful of people's views shorter term, but I'm a bit, a bit more sanguine uh, about what happens over the course of a quarter or a couple of quarters. We were one of the best performing stocks on the various exchanges on which we were listed last year. Uh, the stock has languished for the first couple of quarters uh, this year. Uh, but I think there's resilience, given all of the things that we will discuss and have begun to discuss. Uh, I think that there's a resilience. I think there's a now a recognition that, that there's an excellent investment thesis. And if one looks at over the longer term, I think that there's a, um, there's a huge value proposition. Our share price will go up. This is the way I look at it. It's a bit of a zigzag, an upward zigzag. If one looks at it over the course of years rather than months and quarters, okay. Well, and so if our low this if our low this year is higher than the low last year, that pattern will continue, and the high this year, I believe, will be higher than the high last year. Okay, so at the at the end of this, I want you to describe the type of investor who would be attracted to your uh, company. But first, let's go through some of those growth stories. So, we, why don't we start with Wazimak? Because there's obviously quite a lot of news around that, and people are keen to see what what the plans are going forward. So, if you if you don't mind, so, so Wazimak was a purchase that we engaged in late last year, completed very early this year. Uh, it was a project that was run by a smaller company, a much much smaller company than us. They were not getting a lot of traction. Uh, it is a project that had already completed a feasibility study in 2018. In conducting diligence, it became very clear that the feasibility study was good quality. Uh, we could apply our stamp of approval to it, our imprimatur to it. Uh, Wazimak is very similar to our Jacobina mine in terms of its grade, and the way that we expect to mine it, and its tonnage, what we put through our, through our plant and the mining rate. So we looked at it and said, if we apply the approach that we take to Jacobina, what can we do to optimize it and to improve it? And that's the approach that we've taken. We said that it would be into the third quarter of this year that we would deliver our uh, update to that 2018 feasibility study. That's what we've done. So what do we have today? Again, it's a regional point that needs to be made. This is in Abitibi. Abitibi is prolific. It's where our Canadian Malarctic mine is. Uh, more than 
somewhere between 100 and 150 million ounces of gold has been mined from Abitibi and new discoveries are made. We have 1.9 million ounces in inventory as proven and probable reserves already at Wasamak, and that number will continue to grow. Mines in Quebec, northern Quebec, go to great depths. Uh, our Odyssey project at Canadian Malartic will go to roughly two kilometers or just shy of two kilometers below, below surface. We're at 850 meters and it's open along the strike and at depth. And we have a large land package to boot. So our this is one of our higher conviction exploration opportunities that takes that 1.9 million ounces to something substantially greater. What that means to an investor is that that 10 years of mine life increases. So we bought Wasamac for roughly $114 million. We see a value project today that is about 400 to $500 million based on a 10 year mine life on proven and probable reserves alone. In increasing the mine life by a, by a mere five years, we double the net asset value. So closer to $900 million of net asset value. When the dust is settled here, we will have a mine that produces in the range of 160 to 200,000 ounces per year. We'll do that for that initial 10 year period and likely beyond the 15 years where we have conviction based on uh, exploration opportunity and exploration successes. And we'll be doing all of that at an all in cost that is below our average and the industry average. We're estimating below $850 per ounce. So very consistent uh, with our Jacobina mine. Why I gave the range of production is that the average for life of mine is just shy of 170,000 ounces. However, in the first four years, the production is 200,000 ounces per year. And so what we've done is we've said, our obligation now is to find more ounces that increases mine life, as I mentioned, but that can also be brought forward through that plant that allows us to be able to maintain that steady state of production of 200,000 ounces per year for longer than the first four years of the mine life. That's essentially what we have with Wazamak, and it's an excellent value driver with great returns uh, for just about any gold price. Okay, so great acquisition. You've driven you know, value uh, there. You've got to also produce gold out of the ground because you've got to, you've got to keep filling that hopper. You were punished at the end of last year because you know things fell away at in Argentina because of COVID. Um, you don't want that to happen again. So that. We can see what's happening here at Wazamak. Uh, Jacobina, obviously, also your intent on driving the the ounces there too. You know, are there any, and you mentioned organic growth earlier. You, you want to stay away from MNA because it's expensive. Uh, suggests expensive uh, spend a uh, use of money. What are you doing at Jacobina? So Jacobina is there's a three phased expansion at Jacobina, and again, it's important to provide context here. Remembering that Jacobina was a mine that was producing just shy of 80,000 ounces per year in 2014, 2015. We embarked on a program that had the following components. The first was, let's get the exploration right. This is a, a reef structure very similar to Western Africa. It's very unique in the Americas, one of, one of a kind. And so it's different from a lot of uh, the other mines that one finds in North America, but let's get it right on the geology. Let's get it to a point where we have more inventory of ounces and we succeeded at all of that. In doing that, then we looked at the, the mining rate and we were mining at a faster rate because we have multiple ore bodies. Jacobina is a complex essentially of multiple mines with a common plant. Again, very similar, not dissimilar to what one sees in, in Western Africa with these reef conglomerate 
uh, structures. So uh, our mining rate was exceeding our um, uh, processing rate. So we were stockpiling uh, reserve grade material. And so we, we then said, let's look at what we have to do to the plant. And we created a three phase program for optimization of the plant. We completed phase one late last year, early this year. That takes the plant to 6,500 tons per day. What that means in production is that that 80,000 ounces per year has become now closer to 170 to 180,000 ounces per year at an all-in cost that is in the range of $800 per ounce. Indeed, it's even better than that. We've been showing numbers, actual numbers that are in the 770 to 790 range. So very, very low cost of production. We're now into phase two and phase three. Phase two was to be announced imminently. We had said at the beginning of the year that we anticipated that phase two would be to 8,500 tons uh, per day from the 6,500 tons, and it would cost us $57 million to do that. But when we began to tweak and modify and optimize the plant, it became very clear that that nameplate of 6,500 tons per day was just a nameplate. We were getting 7,000 tons per day, 7,500 tons per day. And that completely reoriented what we felt we had to do for phase two. In other words, we didn't have to spend $57 million. That number is now between 15 and $20 million for modest modifications to the plant that get it to 8,500 tons per day. We're already deep into permitting. We're permitted to 7,500 tons. We're deep into the permitting process to get to 8,500 tons. What does it mean from a production point of view? Well, for, by mid-2023, once permitting is completed and we've made these modest modifications to our existing plant and brought the mining rate up to 8,500 tons per day, we'll be producing 230,000 ounces per year. And again, I think we need to contrast that with where we were just a few years ago. And the third phase of expansion is now optimized as well. We see that as costing us substantially less. Uh, we see that third phase now at 10,000 tons per day. And that means roughly 270,000 ounces per year. And in the meantime, as we announced last week, we're getting significant exploration successes. We have a strike length now that is more than four kilometers with one of the ore bodies alone. And as I said, this is multiple ore bodies. So we're in a very enviable position that we have a production platform of at least 180,000 ounces per year, which increases then to 230 and then 270,000 ounces. And this mine is a generational mine with at least a couple of decades of um, proven and probable reserves and high conviction allowance of resources that would come into reserves. One more brief point. If we look at the current production platform between proven and probable reserves, which stand at about 16 years of mine life and very high conviction resources with a conversion track record of resources to reserves, we're already at 20 years. And so part of the effort that we've undertaken is to say, let's not get ahead of our skis. When we go to 8,500 tons and then 10,000 tons, we want to always make sure that exploration is, is neck and neck with operations so that we stay at that 20 years of mine life at the newer and higher production levels. That, those are the efforts that we've undertaken at Jacobina, and it's gone remarkably well for us. A company like yours, four and a half billion, five billion, depending on the time of day, it's, people think of you differently. People think of you a little bit like royalty companies. There's almost too much going on for them to 
be able to understand what's going on at all the different mine sites and the exploration and so forth. They just want you to hit a number. Just hit that number. You're, you're, you're producers, so you should be good at production. You've uh, you've developed projects into production, so you should be good at development. And there's an expression component to all of the projects that you've got to, the organic growth component. So in a, in a very meaningful way, they just want you to hit your numbers each quarter, and they will assume that you're good at what you do now, right? So there is a little bit of that. And um, it comes back to that question of what type of person is going to be interested in investing in, in your company? Because this seems slow, steady growth. You know, we talked last time about hitting a million answers a year consistently, you know, and, and will that be good enough? You know, how does a big company like this grow meaningfully? You know, there are going to be investors who want high leverage, high return type plays. They, they need to go and play somewhere else. But for you, what, what are they buying into? What do they need to buy well, into? I, I, yeah, so I think as a starting point, uh, forgive me for being blunt, and uh, I appreciate that there's an element of, of hubris that will come out in this, but I'm very proud of this company and the efforts that we've undertaken. Uh, from a personal perspective, I want it all. Uh, I, I want every investor, it doesn't matter if it's a retail investor, if it's a, a program investor, it doesn't matter if it's a, a value investor, a growth investor, institutional or otherwise, what we're looking for is to simplify the message. So you made an excellent point. There's a, there are a lot of moving parts. I hope we're getting better at simplifying the message. We are one million ounce producer out of five mines in four countries that are high quality countries for mining with a growth platform that has been an already 11 to 12% increase from last year to this year. And over the course of the next several years, increases by another 20 to 25% with very low capex, very low capital obligations on a year to year basis. That's essentially the message. So to whom should we appeal, given our low costs and all the other things that I've mentioned? We should appeal to um, almost all the investors out there that are interested in that value proposition. And let me add that, and, and, and I believe that this is temporal, that this will pass. Hopefully your investors will see this and be at the leading edge of, uh, of uh, wanting to invest in our company. But with all of the things that we've done and we've completed and the progression that we've made and that growth and all of the things we've discussed, we're stri still trading at multiples. If we look at all the usual me usual measures, uh, net multiple to net asset value to cash flow to free cash flow, enterprise value to EBITDA, we're trading at a, at a discount to where we were last year with an improved company, an improved balance sheet, an improved cash return to investors. So my view is that when the market begins to see that, that broader market begins to see that, I think that we see share prices that are elevated by comparison to where they were at the highs last year. And that goes back to what I was describing earlier of that zigzag where the lows this year are higher than the lows last year. And one could reasonably assume that the highs this year will be higher than the highs uh, last year. So we want it all. We think that this should appeal to almost universally to investors who are interested in the value proposition with a, a company that is significantly de-risked as we are. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.